Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Chapters 13 through 15 of Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and now Chapter 13, The Loss of the Brig. It was already late at night, and as dark as it would ever be at that season of the year, and that is to say, it was still pretty bright, when Ho Season clapped his head into the roundhouse door. Here, said he, come out and see if you can pilot "'Is this one of your tricks?' asked Alan. "'Do I look like tricks?' cries the captain. "'I have other things to think of. My brig's in danger.' By the concerned look of his face, and above all, by the sharp tones in which he spoke of his brig, it was plain to both of us that he was in deadly earnest, and so Alan and I, with no great fear of treachery, stepped on deck. The sky was clear, it blew hard, and was bitter cold. A great deal of daylight lingered, and the moon, which was nearly full, shone brightly.' The brig was close-hauled, so as to round the southwest corner of the island of Mull, the hills of which, and Ben Moore above them all, with a wisp of mist upon the top of it, lay full upon the larboard brow. There was no good point of sailing for the Covenant. She tore through the seas at a great rate, pitching and straining, and pursued by a westerly swell. Altogether it was no such ill night to keep the seas in, and I had begun to wonder what it was that sat so heavily upon the captain when the brig, rising suddenly on the top of a high swell, found the captain pointing and crying to us to look. Away on the lee bow, a thing like a fountain rose out of the moonlit sea, and immediately after we heard a low sound of roaring. "'What do you call that?' asked the captain gloomily. "'The sea's breaking on a reef,' said Alan, "'and now you ken where it is, and what better would you have?' "'Aye,' said Hoseason, "'if it was the only one.' And sure enough, "'Just as he spoke there came a second fountain farther to the south. "'There,' said Ho Season, "'you see for yourself, if I had kent of these reefs, "'if I had had a chart, or if Schwann had been spared, "'it's not sixty guineas, no, nor six hundred, "'would have made me risk my brig in such a stone-yard. "'But you, sir, that was the pilotus, "'have you never a word?' "'I'm thinking,' said Alan. "'These will be what they call the Torren Rocks. "'Are there many of them?' "'says the captain. "'Truly, sir, I'm not a pilot,' said Alan. "'But it sticks in my mind there are ten miles of them.' "'Mr. Riosch and the captain looked at each other. "'There's a way through them, I suppose,' said the captain. "Doubtless," said Alan. "'But where? "'But it somehow runs in my mind once more that it's clearer under the land.' "'So?' said Hoseason. "'We'll have to haul our wind, then, Mr. Riosch. "'We'll have to come in as near about the end of Mull as we can take her, sir.' "'and even then we'll have the land to keep the wind off us, "'and that stone yard on our lee. "'Well, we're in port now, and may as well crack on.' "'With that he gave an order to the steersman "'and sent Rios to the foretop. "'There were only five men on deck, counting the officers, "'these being all that were fit, or at least both fit and willing, for their work. "'So, as I say, it fell to Mr. Rios to go aloft, "'and he sat there looking out and hailing the deck with news of all he saw.' "'The sea to the south is thick,' he cried, and then, after a while, "'it does seem clearer in by the land.' "'Well, sir,' said Hoseason to Alan, "'we'll try your way of it, but I think I might as well trust to a blind fiddler. "'Pray God you're right.' "'Pray God I am,' says Alan to me. "'But where did I hear it? "'Well, well, what will be will be.' "'As we got nearer to the turn of the land, "'the reefs began to be sown here and there on our very path, 
"'and Mr. Rios sometimes cried down to us to change the course. "'Sometimes, indeed, none too soon, "'for one reef was so close on the brig's weatherboard "'that when a sea burst upon it, "'the lighter sprays fell upon her deck "'and wetted us like rain. "'The brightness of the night showed us these perils "'as clearly as by day, "'which was perhaps the more alarming. "'It showed me, too, the face of the captain "'as he stood by the steersman, "'now on one foot, now on the other, "'and sometimes blowing in his hands.' "'but still listening and looking and as steady as steel. "'Neither he nor Mr. Riosh had shown well in the fighting, "'but I saw they were brave in their own trade, "'and admired them all the more because I found Alan very white. "'Ochone, David,' says he, "'this is not a kind of death I fancy.' "'What, Alan?' I cried. "'You're not afraid?' "'No,' said he, wetting his lips. "'But you'll allow yourself that it's a cold ending. "'By this time... "'now and then shearing to one side or the other to avoid a reef, "'but still hugging the wind and the land, "'we had got round Iona and begun to come alongside Mull. "'The tide at the tail of the land ran very strong "'and threw the brig about wildly. Two hands were put to the helm, "'and Ho Season himself would sometimes lend a help, "'and it was strange to see three strong men "'throw their weight upon the tiller, "'and it, like a living thing, struggle against and drive them back.' This would have been the greater danger had not the sea been for some while free of obstacles. Mr. Riosh, besides, announced from the top that he saw clear water ahead. "'Well, you were right,' said Hoseason to Allen. "'You've saved the brig, sir. I'll mind that when we come to clear accounts.' And I believe he not only meant what he said, but would have done it, so high a place did the covenant hold in his affections. But this matter only for conjecture, things having gone otherwise than he forecast.' "'Keep her away a point,' sings out Mr. Riage. "'Reef to windward!' And just at that same time the tide caught the brig and threw the wind out of her sails. She came round into the wind like a top, and the next moment struck the reef with such a dunch as threw us all flat upon the deck, and came near to shake Mr. Rios from his place upon the mast. I was on my feet in a minute. The reef on which we had struck was close in, under the southwest end of Mull, off a little isle they call Irade, "'which lay low and black upon the larboard. "'Sometimes the swell broke clean over us. "'Sometimes it only ground the poor brig upon the reef, "'so that we could hear her beat herself to pieces, "'and what with the great noise of the sails, "'and the singing of the wind, "'and the flying of the spray in the moonlight, "'and the sense of danger, "'I think my head must have been partly turned, "'for I could scarcely understand the things I saw. "'Presently I observed Mr. Riosh and the seamen "'busy round the skiff, "'and still in the same blank, "'ran over to assist them, "'and as soon as I set my hand to work, "'my mind came clear again. "'It was no very easy task, "'for the skiff lay amidships and was full of hamper, "'and the breaking of the heavier seas "'continually forced us to give over and hold on, "'but we all wrought like horses while we could. "'Meanwhile, such of the wounded as could move "'came clambering out of the fore-scuttle and began to help, "'while the rest that lay helpless in their bunks "'harrowed me with screaming and begging to be saved. "'The captain took no part,' It seemed he was struck stupid. He stood holding by the shrouds, talking to himself and groaning out aloud whenever the ship hammered on the rock. His brig was like wife and child to him. He had looked on, day by day, at the mishandling of poor Ransom, but when he came to the brig, he seemed to suffer along with her. All the time of our working at the boat, I remember only one other thing, that I asked Alan, looking across at the shore, what country it was, and he answered, it was the worst possible for him. "'for it was the land of the Campbells. "'We had one of the wounded men told off "'to keep a watch upon the seas and cry as a warning. 
"'Well, he had the boat about ready to be launched, "'when this man sang out pretty shrill. "'For God's sake, hold on!' "'We knew by his tone that it was something more than the ordinary, "'and sure enough, there followed a sea so huge "'that it lifted the brig right up and canted her over on her beam. "'Whether the cry came too late or my hold was too weak, I know not, "'but at the sudden lifting of the ship "'I was cast clean over the bulwarks and into the sea. "'I went down and drank my fill and then came up, "'and got a blink of the moon, then went down again. "'They say a man sinks a third time for good. "'I cannot be made like other folk then, "'for I would not like to write how often I went down "'or how often I came up again. "'All the while I was being hurled along "'and beaten upon and choked, and then swallowed whole, "'and the thing was so distracting to my wits "'that I was neither sorry nor afraid. "'Presently I found I was holding to a spar, "'which helped me somewhat, "'and then all of a sudden I was in quiet water.' "'and began to come back to myself. "'It was the spare yard I'd got hold of, "'and I was amazed to see how far I had travelled from the brig. "'I hailed her, indeed, "'but it was plain she was already out of cry. "'She was still holding together, "'but whether or not they had yet launched the boat, "'I was too far off and too low down to see. "'While I was hailing the brig, "'I spied a tract of water lying between us "'where no great waves came, "'but which yet boiled white all over "'and bristled to the moon with rings and bubbles.' Sometimes the whole track swung to one side, like the tail of a live serpent. Sometimes, for a glimpse, it would all disappear, and then boil up again. What it was, I had no guess, which for the time increased my fear of it. But I now know it must have been the roost or tide race, which had carried me away so fast and tumbled me about so cruelly, and at last, as if tired of that play, had flung out me and the spare yard upon its landward margin. I now lay quite becalmed, "'and began to feel that a man can die of cold as well as of drowning. "'The shores of Eiraid were close in, "'and I could see in the moonlight the dots of heather "'and the sparkling of the mica in the rocks. "'Well,' thought I to myself, "'if I cannot get as far as that, it would be strange. "'I had no skill of swimming, "'essen water being small in our neighborhood, "'but when I laid hold upon the yard with both arms "'and kicked out with both feet, "'I soon began to find that I was moving.' Hard work it was, and mortally slow, but after about an hour of kicking and splashing, I got well in between the points of a sandy bay surrounded by low hills. The sea was here quite quiet. There was no sound of any surf. The moon shone clear, and I thought in my heart I'd never seen a place so deserted and desolate. But it was dry land, and when at last it grew so shallow that I could leave the yard and wade ashore upon my feet, I cannot tell if I was more tired or more grateful. Both at least I was. "'tired as I never was before that night, "'and grateful to God as I trust I've been often, "'though never with more cause. "'We'll return with Chapter 14, "'right after this sponsor message. "'And now Chapter 14, The Islet. "'With my stepping ashore I began the most unhappy part of my adventures. "'It was half-past twelve in the morning, "'and though the wind was broken by the land, "'it was a cold night.' I dared not sit down, for I thought I should have frozen, but took off my shoes and walked to and fro upon the sand, barefoot, and beating my breast with infinite weariness. There was no sound of man nor cattle, not a cock crew, though it was about the hour of their first waking. Only the surf broke outside in the distance, which put me in mind of my perils and those of my friend. To walk by the sea at that hour of the morning, and in a place so desert-like and lonesome, struck me with a kind of fear. As soon as the day began to break, I put on my shoes and climbed a hill, 
the ruggedest scramble I ever undertook, falling the whole way between big blocks of granite or leaping from one to the other. When I got to the top, the dawn was come. There was no sign of the brig, which must have lifted from the reef and sunk. The boat, too, was nowhere to be seen. There was never a sail upon the ocean, and in what I could see of the land was neither house nor man. I was afraid to think what had befallen my shipmates, and afraid to look longer at so empty a scene. What with my wet clothes and weariness, and my belly that now began to ache with hunger, I had enough to trouble me without that. So I set off eastward along the south coast, hoping to find a house where I might warm myself, and perhaps get news of those I had lost. And at the worst, I considered the sun would soon rise and dry my clothes. After a little, my way was stopped by a creek or inlet of the sea, which seemed to run pretty deep into the land, and as I had no means to get across, I must needs change my direction to go about to the end of it. It was still the roughest kind of walking, indeed the whole, not only of Eraid, but of the neighboring part of Mole, which they call the Ross, is nothing but a jumble of granite rocks with heather in among them. At first the creek kept narrowing as I had looked to see, but presently to my surprise it began to widen out again. At this I scratched my head, but had still no notion of the truth, until at last I came upon a rising ground, and it burst upon me all of a sudden that I was cast upon a little barren isle, and cut off on every side by the salt seas. And instead of the sun rising to dry me, it came on to rain with a thick mist, so that my case was lamentable. I stood in the rain and shivered, and wondered what to do, till it occurred to me that perhaps the creek was fordable. Back I went to the narrowest point and waded in, but not three yards from the shore I plumped in head over ears, and if ever I was heard of more, it was rather by God's grace than my own prudence. I was no wetter, for that I could hardly be, but I was all the colder for this mishap, and having lost another hope, was the more unhappy. And now, all at once, the yard came in my head. What had carried me through the roost would surely serve me to cross this little quiet creek in safety. With that I set off, undaunted, across the top of the aisle, to fetch and carry it back. It was a weary tramp in all ways, and if hope had not buoyed me up, I must have cast myself down and given up. Whether with the sea salt, or because I was growing fevered, I was distressed with thirst, and had to stop as I went, and drink the peaty water out of the hags. I came to the bay at last, more dead than alive, and at the first glance I thought the yard was something farther out than when I left it. In I went, for the third time, into the sea. The sand was smooth and firm, and shelved gradually down, so that I could wade out till the water was almost to my neck, and the little waves splashed into my face. But at that depth my feet began to leave me, and I durst venture in no further. As for the yard, I saw it bobbing very quietly some twenty feet beyond. I did not know how to swim. I had borne up well until this last disappointment, but at that I came ashore, and flung myself down upon the sands, and wept. The time I spent upon the island is still so horrible a thought to me that I must pass it lightly over. In all the books I've read of people cast away, they had either their pockets full of tools, or a chest of things would be thrown upon the beach along with them, as if on purpose. My case was very different. I had nothing in my pockets but money and Alan's silver button, and being inland bred, I was as much short of knowledge as of means. I knew indeed that shellfish were counted good to eat, and among the rocks of the isle I found a great plenty of limpets, 
which at first I could scarcely strike from their places, not knowing quickness to be needful. There were, besides, some of the little shells that we call buckies. I think periwinkle is the English name. Of these two I made my whole diet, devouring them cold and raw as I found them, and so hungry was I that at first they seemed to me delicious. Perhaps they were out of season, or perhaps there was something wrong in the sea about my island. But at least I had no sooner eaten my first meal than I was seized with giddiness and retching, and lay for a long time no better than dead. A second trial of the same food, indeed I had no other, did better with me, and revived my strength. But as long as I was on the island, I never knew what to expect when I had eaten. Sometimes all was well, and sometimes I was thrown into a miserable sickness, nor could I ever distinguish what particular fish it was that hurt me. All day it streamed rain, the island ran like a sop, there was no dry spot to be found, and when I lay down that night, between two boulders that made a kind of roof, my feet were in a bog. The second day I crossed the island to all sides, there was no one part of it better than another, it was all desolate and rocky, nothing living on it but game birds which I lacked the means to kill, and the gulls which haunted the outlying rocks in a prodigious number. But the creek, or strait, that cut off the isle from the mainland of the Ross, opened out on the north into a bay, and the bay again opened into the sound of Iona. And it was the neighborhood of this place that I chose to be my home, though if I had thought upon the very name of home, in such a spot, I would have burst out weeping. I had good reasons for my choice. There was in this part of the isle a little hut of a house like a pig's hut, where fishers used to sleep when they came there upon their business. But the turf roof of it had fallen entirely in, so that the hut was of no use to me, and gave me less shelter than my rocks. What was more important, the shellfish on which I lived grew there in great plenty. When the tide was out I could gather a peck at a time, and this was doubtless a convenience. But the other reason went deeper. I had become in no way used to the horrid solitude of the isle, but still looked round me on all sides, like a man that was hunted, between fear and hope that I might see some human creature coming. Now, from a little up the hillside over the bay, I could catch a sight of the great, ancient church and the roofs of the people's houses in Iona. And on the other hand, over the low country of the Ross, I saw smoke go up, morning and evening, as if from a homestead in the hollow of the land. I used to watch this smoke, when I was wet and cold, and had my head half turned with loneliness, and think of the fireside in the company, till my heart burned. It was the same with the roofs of Iona. Altogether, this sight I had of men's homes and comfortable lives, although it put a point on my own sufferings, yet it kept hope alive, and helped me to eat my raw shellfish, which I'd soon grown to be disgusted with, and saved me from the sense of horror I had whenever I was quite alone with dead rocks and fowls and the rain and the cold sea. I say it kept hope alive, and indeed it seemed impossible that I should be left to die on the shores of my own country, and within view of a church tower and the smoke of men's houses. But the second day passed, and though as long as the light lasted I kept a bright look up for boats on the sound, or men passing on the Ross, no help came near me. It still rained, and I turned in to sleep as wet as ever, and with a cruel sore throat, but a little comforted, perhaps, by having said good night to my next neighbors, the people of Iona. Charles II declared a man could stay outdoors more days in the year in the climate of England than any other. This was very like a king, with a palace at his back and changes of dry clothes. 
"'but he must have had better luck on his flight from Worcester "'than I had on that miserable isle. "'It was the height of the summer, "'yet it rained for more than twenty-four hours "'and did not clear until the afternoon of the third day. "'This was the day of incidents. "'In the morning I saw a red deer, "'a buck with a fine spread of antlers, "'standing in the rain on the top of the island. "'But he had scarce seen me rise from under my rock "'before he trotted off upon the other side.' "'I supposed you must have swum the strait, "'though what should bring any creature to ear-raid "'was more than I could fancy. "'A little after, as I was jumping about after my limpets, "'I was startled by a guinea-piece, "'which fell upon a rock in front of me "'and glanced off into the sea. "'When the sailors gave me my money again, "'they kept back not only about a third of the whole sum, "'but my father's leather purse, "'so that from that day out "'I carried my gold loose in a pocket with a button. "'I now saw there must be a hole.' "'and clapped my hand to the place in a great hurry. "'But this was to lock the stable door "'after the steed was stolen. "'I had left the shore at Queensbury "'with near on fifty pounds, "'and now I found more than two guinea pieces "'and a silver shilling. "'It is true I picked up a third guinea a little after "'where it lay shining on a piece of turf. "'That made a fortune of three pounds and four shillings. "'English money, for a lad, "'the rightful heir of an estate.' "'and now starving on an isle at the extreme end of the wild highlands. "'This state of my affairs dashed me still further, "'and indeed my plight on that third morning was truly pitiful. "'My clothes were beginning to rot. "'My stockings in particular were quite worn through, "'so that my shanks went naked. "'My hands had grown quite soft with the continual soaking. "'My throat was very sore. "'My strength had much abated, "'and my heart so turned against the hard stuff I was condemned to eat "'that the very sight of it came near to sicken me. "'And yet the worst was not yet to come. "'There is a pretty high rock on the northwest of Eurade, "'which, because it had a flat top and overlooked the sound, "'I was much in the habit of frequenting. "'Not that I ever stayed in one place, save one asleep, "'my misery giving me no rest. "'Indeed, I wore myself down with continual and aimless "'goings and comings in the rain. "'As soon, however, as the sun came out, I lay down upon the top of that rock to dry myself. The comfort of the sunshine is a thing I cannot tell. It set me thinking hopefully of my deliverance, of which I had begun to despair, and I scanned the sea and the Ross with a fresh interest. On the south of my rock, a part of the island jutted out and hid the open ocean, so that a boat could thus come quite near me upon that side, and I would be none the wiser. Well, all of a sudden, "'A coba with a brown sail and a pair of fishers aboard of it "'came flying round that corner of the isle, bound for Iona. "'I shouted out, and then fell on my knees on the rock, "'and reached up my hands and prayed to them. "'They were near enough to hear. "'I could even see the color of their hair. "'And there was no doubt but that they observed me, "'for they cried out in the Gaelic tongue and laughed. "'But the boat never turned aside, "'and flew on right before my eyes for Iona.' I could not believe such wickedness, and ran along the shore from rock to rock, crying on them piteously. Even after they were out of reach of my voice, I still cried and waved to them, and when they were quite gone, I thought my heart would have burst. All the time of my troubles I wept only twice, once when I could not reach the yard, and now the second time, when these fishers turned a deaf ear to my cries. But this time I wept and roared like a wicked child, "'tearing up the turf with my nails "'and grinding my face in the earth. "'If a wish would kill men, "'those two fishes would never have seen morning, 
"'and I should likely have died upon my island. "'When I was a little over my anger, "'I must eat again, "'but with such loathing of the mess "'as I could now scarce control. "'Sure enough, I should have done as well to fast, "'for my fishes poisoned me again. "'I had all my first pains. "'My throat was so sore I could scarce swallow. "'I had a fit of strong shuddering, "'which clicked my teeth together.' and there came upon me that dreadful sense of illness, which we have no name for, either in Scotch or English. I thought I should have died, and made my peace with God, forgiving all men, even my uncle, and the fishers, and as soon as I had thus made up my mind to the worst, clearness came upon me. I observed the night was falling dry. My clothes were dried a good deal. Truly, I was in a better case than ever before, since I had landed on the isle, and so I got to sleep at last, with a thought of gratitude. The next day, which was the fourth of this horrible life of mine, I found my body strength run very low. But the sun shone, the air was sweet, and what I managed to eat of the selfish agreed well with me this time, and revived my courage. I was scarce back on my rock, where I went always the first thing after I'd eaten, before I observed a boat coming down the sound, and with her head, as I thought, in my direction. I began at once to hope and fear exceedingly, for I thought these men might have thought better of their cruelty in becoming back to my assistance. But another disappointment, such as yesterday's, was more than I could bear. I turned my back accordingly upon the sea, and did not look again till I had counted many hundreds. The boat was still heading for the island. The next time I counted a full thousand, as slowly as I could, my heart beating so as to hurt me, and then it was all out of the question— she was coming straight to Earraid. I could no longer hold myself back, but ran to the seaside and out, from one rock to another, as far as I could go. It's a marvel I was not drowned, for when I was brought to a stand at last, my leg shook under me, and my mouth was so dry, I must wet it with seawater before I was able to shout. All this time the boat was coming on, and now I was able to perceive it was the same boat and the same two men as yesterday. This I knew by their hair, "'which the one had a bright yellow and the other black. "'But now there was a third man along with them "'who looked to be of a better class. "'As soon as they were come within easy speech, "'they let down their sail and lay quiet. "'In spite of my supplications, "'they drew no nearer in, "'and what frightened me most of all, "'the new man tee-heed with laughter "'as he talked and looked at me. "'Then he stood up in the boat "'and addressed me a long while, "'speaking fast and with many wavings of his hand. "'I told him I had no Gaelic.' "'and at this he became very angry, "'and I began to suspect he thought he was talking English. "'Listening very close, I caught the word, "'whatever, several times, "'but all the rest was Gaelic, "'and might have been Greek and Hebrew to me. "'Whatever,' said I, "'to show him I'd caught a word. "'Yes, yes,' says he, "'and then he looked at the other men, "'as much to say, "'I told you I spoke English, "'and began again as hard as ever in the Gaelic.' This time I picked out another word, tide. Then I had a flash of hope. I remembered that he was always waving his hand toward the mainland of the Ross. Do you mean when the tide is out? I cried, and could not finish. Yes, yes, said he, tide. At that I turned tail upon their boat, where my adviser had once more begun to tee-hee with laughter, leaped back the way I had come, from one stone to another, "'and set off running across the isle as I'd never run before. "'In about a half an hour I came out upon the shores of the creek, "'and sure enough, 
"'it was shrunk into a little trickle of water, "'through which I dashed, not above my knees, "'and landed with a shout on the main island. "'A sea-bred boy would not have stayed a day on air aid, "'which is only what they call a tidal island, "'and except in the bottom of the neeps, "'can be entered and left twice in every twenty-four hours, "'either dry-shod or at the most by waiting. "'Even I, who had the tide going out and in before me in the bay, "'and even watched for the ebbs, the better to get my shellfish, "'even I, I say, if I'd sat down to think, "'instead of raging at my fate, "'must have soon guessed the secret and got free. "'It was no wonder the fishers had not understood me. "'The wonder was rather that they had ever guessed my pitiful illusion "'and taken the trouble to come back.' I had starved with cold and hunger on that island for close upon one hundred hours. But for the fishers, I might have left my bones there in pure folly. And even as it was, I had paid for it pretty dear, not only in past sufferings, but in my present case, being clothed like a beggar man, scarce able to walk, and in great pain with my sore throat. I have seen wicked men and fools, a great many of both, and I believe they both get paid in the end. But the fools get paid first. We'll return with Chapter 15, right after this sponsor message. And now, Chapter 15, The Lad with the Silver Button, Through the Isle of Mull. The Ross of Mull, which I had now got upon, was rugged and trackless, like the isle I had just left, being all bog and briar and big stone. There may be roads for them that know the country well, but for my part I had no better guide than my own nose, and no other landmark than Ben Moore. I aimed as well as I could for the smoke I'd seen so often from the island, and with all my great weariness and the difficulty of the way came upon the house in the bottom of the little hollow about five or six at night. It was low and longish, rooted with turf and built of unmortared stones, and on a mound in front of it an old gentleman sat smoking his pipe in the sun. With what little English he had, he gave me to understand that my shipmates had got safe ashore and had broken bread in that very house on the day after. Was there one? "'I asked, dressed like a gentleman. "'He said they all wore rough greatcoats, "'but to be sure, the first of them, "'the one that came alone, "'wore breeches and stockings, "'while the rest had sailors' trousers. "'Ah,' said I, "'and would he have a feathered hat? "'He told me no, "'that he was bareheaded like myself. "'At first I thought Alan might have lost his hat, "'and then the rain came in my mind, "'and I judged it more likely "'that he had it out of harm's way "'under his greatcoat.' This set me smiling, partly because my friend was safe, partly to think of his vanity in dress. And then the old gentleman clapped his hand to his brow and cried out that I must be the lad with the silver button. "'Why, yes,' said I, in some wonder. "'Well, then,' said the old gentleman, "'I have a word for you, that you are to follow your friend to his country, by Torosay. He then asked me how I had fared, and I told him my tale. A south country man would certainly have laughed, "'but this old gentleman, I call him so because of his manners, "'for his clothes were dropping off his back, "'heard me all through with nothing but gravity and pity. "'When I had done, he took me by the hand, "'led me into his hut, it was no better, "'and presented me before his wife, "'as if she had been the queen and I a duke. "'The good woman sat oat-bread before me "'and a cold grouse, patting my shoulder "'and smiling to me all the time, "'for she had no English, "'and the old gentleman, not to be behind,' "'brewed me a strong punch out of their country spirit. "'All the while I was eating, "'and after that when I was drinking the punch, "'I could scarce come to believe in my good fortune, "'and the house, 
though it was thick with the peat smoke and as full of holes as a colander, seemed like a palace. The punch threw me in a strong sweat and a deep slumber. The good people let me lie, and it was near noon of the next day before I took the road, my throat already easier and my spirits quite restored by good fare and good news. The old gentleman, although I pressed him hard, would take no money, and gave me an old bonnet for my head, though I am free to own I was no sooner out of view of the house than I very jealously washed this gift of his in a wayside fountain. Thought I to myself, if these are the wild highlanders, I could wish my own folk wilder. I not only started late, but I must have wandered nearly half the time. True, I met plenty of people, grubbing in little miserable fields that would not keep a cat, or herding little kind about the bigness of asses. The highland dress being forbidden by law since the rebellion, and the people condemned to the lowland habit, which they much disliked, it was strange to see the variety of their array. Some went bare, only for a hanging cloak or greatcoat, and carried their trousers on their backs, like a useless burthen. Some had made an imitation of the tartan, with little party-colored stripes patched together like an old wife's quilt. Others, again, still wore the highland filibag, but by putting a few stitches between the legs, transformed it into a pair of trousers, like a Dutchman's. All those makeshifts were condemned and punished, for the law was harshly applied, in hopes to break up the clan spirit. But in that out-of-the-way, sea-bound isle, there are few to make remarks, and fewer to tell tales. They seemed in great poverty, which was no doubt natural, now that rapine was put down, and the chiefs were no longer an open house, and the roads, even such a wandering, country by-track as the one I followed, were infested with beggars. And here again I marked a difference from my own part of the country. For our lowland beggars, even the gownsmen themselves, who begged by patent, had a louding, flattering way with them, and if you gave them a plague and asked change, would very civilly return you a bottle. But these highland beggars stood on their dignity, asked alms only to buy snuff, by their account, and would give no change. To be sure, this was no concern of mine, except in so far as it entertained me by the way. But was much more to the purpose. Few had any English, and these few, unless they were of the brotherhood of beggars, not very anxious to place it at my service. I knew Torosay to be my destination, and repeated the name to them and pointed. But instead of simply pointing in reply, they would give me a screed of the Gaelic that set me foolish, so it was small wonder if I went out of my road as often as I stayed in it. At last, about eight at night, and already very weary, I came to a lone house, where I asked admittance, and was refused, until I bethought me of the power of money in so poor a country, and held up one of my guineas in my finger and thumb. Thereupon the man of the house, who had hitherto pretended to have no English, and driven me from his door by signals, suddenly began to speak as clearly as was needful, and agreed for five shillings to give me a night's lodging and guide me the next day to Torosay. I slept uneasily that night, fearing I should be robbed, but I might have spared myself the pain, for my host was no robber, only miserably poor and a great cheat. He was not alone in his poverty, for the next morning we must go five miles about to the house of what he called a rich man to have one of my guineas changed. This was perhaps a rich man for Mull. He would have scarce been thought so in the south, for it took all he had, the whole house was turned upside down, and a neighbor brought under contribution before he could scrape together twenty shillings in silver. The odd shilling he kept for himself, protesting he could ill afford to have so great a sum of money lying locked up. 
"'For all that he was very courteous and well-spoken, "'made us both sit down with his family to dinner, "'and brewed punch in a fine china bowl, "'over which my rascal guy grew so merry "'that he refused to start. "'I was for getting angry, "'and appealed to the rich man, "'Hector McLean was his name, "'who had been a witness to our bargain "'and to my payment of the five shillings. "'But McLean had taken his share of the punch, "'and vowed that no gentleman should leave his table "'after the bowl was brewed. "'So there was nothing for it "'but to sit and hear Jacobite toasts and Gaelic songs "'till all were tipsy "'and staggered off to the bed or the barn "'for their night's rest. "'Next day, the fourth of my travels, "'we were up before five upon the clock, "'but my rascal guide got to the bottle at once, "'and it was three hours before I had him clear of the house, "'and then, as you shall hear, "'only for a worse disappointment.' As long as we went down a heathery valley that lay before Mr. McLean's house, all went well. Only my guide looked constantly over his shoulder, and when I asked him the cause, only grinned at me. No sooner, however, had we crossed the back of a hill and got out of sight of the house windows than he told me Torresay lay right in front, and that a hilltop, which he pointed out, was my best landmark. "'I care very little for that,' said I, "'since you are going with me.' "'The impudent cheat answered me in the Gaelic "'that he had no English. "'My fine fellow,' I said, "'I know very well your English comes and goes. "'Tell me what will bring it back. "'Is it more money you wish?' Five shillings, Mare,' said he, "'and her cell will bring you there.' "'I reflected a while, and then offered him two, "'which he accepted greedily, "'and insisted on having in his hands at once, "'for luck, as he said, "'but I think it was rather... "'for my misfortune. "'The two shillings carried him not quite as many miles, "'at the end of which distance "'he sat down upon the wayside "'and took off his brogues from his feet "'like a man about to rest. "'I was now red-hot angry. "'Ha!' said I. "'Have you no more English?' "'He said impudently, "'No.' "'At that I boiled over "'and lifted my hand to strike him, "'and he, drawing a knife from his rags, "'squatted back and grinned at me like a wild cat. "'At that Forgetting everything but my anger, I ran in upon him, put aside his knife with my left, and struck him in the mouth with the right. I was a strong lad and very angry, and he but a little man, and he went down before me heavily. By good luck, his knife flew out of his hand as he fell. I picked up both that and his brogues, wished him a good morning, and set off upon my way, leaving him barefoot and disarmed. I chuckled to myself as I went, being sure I was done with that rogue for a variety of reasons. First, he knew he could have no more of my money. Next, the brogues were worth in that country only a few pence. And lastly, the knife, which was really a dagger. It was against the law for him to carry. In about a half an hour of walk, I overtook a great, ragged man, moving pretty fast, but feeling before him with a staff. He was quite blind, and told me he was a catechist, which should have put me in my ease. But his face went against me. It seemed dark and dangerous and secret. "'and presently, as we began to go on alongside, "'I saw the steel butt of a pistol "'sticking from under the flap of his coat pocket. "'To carry such a thing meant a fine of fifteen pounds sterling "'upon the first offense, "'and transportation to the colonies upon a second. "'Nor could I quite see why a religious teacher should go armed, "'or what a blind man could be doing with a pistol. "'I told him about my guide, "'for I was proud of what I had done, "'and my vanity for once got the heels of my prudence.' At the mention of the five shillings, he cried so loud that I made up my mind I should say nothing of the other two, and was glad he could not see my blushes. 
"'Was it too much?' I asked, a little faltering. "'Too much!' cries he. "'Well, I will guide you to Tarsay myself for a dram of brandy, "'and give you the great pleasure of my company, "'me that is a man of some learning, in the bargain.' "'I said I did not see how a blind man could be a guide, "'but at that he laughed aloud, "'and said his stick was eyes enough for an eagle. "'In the Isle of Mull, at least,' says he, "'where I know every stone and heatherbush by the mark of head. "'See now,' he said, striking right and left, "'as if to make sure. "'Down there a burn is running, "'and at the head of it there stands a bit of a small hill "'with a stone cocked upon the top of that. "'And it's hard at the foot of the hill "'that the way runs by to Torresay. "'And the way here, being for droves, "'is plainly trodden, "'and will show grassy through the heather. "'I had to own he was right in every feature, "'and told my wonder. "'Ha!' says he. "'That's nothing. "'Would you believe me now "'that before the act came out "'and when there were weapons in this country "'I could shoot? "'Aye, could I?' cries he. "'And then with a leer. "'If you had such a thing as a pistol here to try with, "'I would show you how it's done.' "'I told him I had nothing of the sort "'and gave him a wider berth. "'If he had known, "'his pistol stuck at that time quite plainly out of his pocket, "'and I could see the sun twinkle on the steel of the butt.' "'but by the better luck for me, he knew nothing, "'thought all was covered, and lied on in the dark. "'Then he began to question me cunningly, "'where I came from, whether I was rich, "'whether I could change a five-shilling piece for him, "'which he declared he had at that moment in his sporan. "'And all the time he kept edging up to me, "'and I avoiding him. "'We were now upon a sort of green cattle track "'which crossed the hills towards Torsay, "'and we kept changing sides upon that "'like dancers in a reel.' I had so plainly the upper hand that my spirits rose, and indeed I took a pleasure in this game of blind man's bluff. But the catechist grew angrier and angrier, and at last began to swear in Gaelic, and to strike for my legs with his staff. Then I told him that, sure enough, I had a pistol in my pocket as well as he, and if he did not strike across the hill due south, I would blow his brains out. He became at once very polite, and after trying to soften me for some time, but quite in vain, "'He cursed me once more in Gaelic "'and took himself off. "'I watched him striding along "'through bog and briar, "'tapping with his stick "'until he turned the end of a hill "'and disappeared in the next hollow. "'Then I struck on again for Torosay, "'much better pleased to be alone "'than to travel with that man of learning. "'This was an unlucky day, "'and these two, "'of whom I had just rid myself, "'one after the other, "'were the two worst men I met with in the highlands.' At Torosay, on the south of the Mole, and looking over to the mainland of Morven, there was an inn with an innkeeper, who was a Maclean, it appeared, of a very high family. For to keep an inn is thought even more genteel in the highlands than it is with us, perhaps as partaking of hospitality, or perhaps because the trade is idle and drunken. He spoke good English, and finding me to be something of a scholar, tried me first in French, where he easily beat me, and then in the Latin, in which I don't know which of us did best. This pleasant rivalry put us at once upon friendly terms, and I sat up and drank punch with him, or to be more correct, sat up and watched him drink it, until he was so tipsy that he wept upon my shoulder. I tried him, as if by accident, with a sight of Alan's button, but it was plain he'd never seen or heard of it. Indeed, he bore some grudge against the family and the friends of Argeal, and before he was drunk he read me a lampoon, in very good Latin, but with a very ill meaning, which he had made in elegiac verses upon a person of that house. When I told him of the catechist, he shook his head, and said I was lucky to have got clear off. That is a very dangerous man, he said. Duncan McClee is his name, 
"'He can shoot by the ear at several yards, "'and has been often accused of highway robberies, "'and once of murder. "'The cream of it is,' says I, "'that he called himself a catechist. "'And why should he not?' says he, "'when that is what he is. "'It was McLean of Dwart gave it to him "'because he was blind. "'But perhaps it was a pity,' says my host, "'for he is always on the road, "'going from one place to another "'to hear the young folks say their religion, "'and doubtless that is a great temptation "'to the poor man.' At last, when my landlord could drink no more, he showed me to a bed, and I lay down in very good spirits, having traveled the greater part of that big and crooked island of Mole, from Iray to Torse, fifty miles as the crow flies, and, with my wanderings, much nearer a hundred, in four days and with little fatigue. Indeed, I was by far in better heart and health of body at the end of that long tramp than I'd been at the beginning." The story continues next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, here at 1001 Stories for the Road. And we do have some reviews I'd like to share with you. Great Tales Well Read, 5 stars. Most, if not all, of the selections are also on LibriVox.org. But this guy is a much better reader than 97% of LibriVox contributors, so his versions will almost always be better, and he's gathered together an excellent collection. Enjoying immensely right now his reading of John Buchanan's 1915 landmark political thriller, The 39 Steps. And we know that that's John Buchan. And thank you for that review. That's Deli Sid. And that's Deli Sid, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, amazing, five stars. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And then one, two, three, four, five lines of amazing emojis. That one from Mason, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, VR, five stars. Repetitive tasks can be boring, but I can't wait to get started on them so I can plug into your storytelling. Reminds me of the intensity of reading the Louis L'Amour books as a youngster. Thank you, sir. That one from iCutter, Apple Podcast. And iCutter, I think I've read every Louis L'Amour book ever made. And some of them maybe twice. I started reading them when I was about 13. And they are fantastic books. I even sent a letter one time to Louis L'Amour and I got a, and got a handwritten response, which I still keep. Thanks for mentioning his name. One of the greatest of all storytellers. And this one, Kidnapped, five stars. Gonna be good. Great reading, John. That one from Market Pop, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thanks, Market Pop. And this one, great storytelling. I love this podcast and amp. The presenter's ability to effortlessly present, convincingly voice different characters. It's become my companion to send me to sleep or do my chores. Keep it up. That one from Vivi732, Apple Podcast, South Africa. And this one, five stars. Mr. Standfast is great. Don't listen to the haters. I dig it anyway. That one from Mitch Docker Fan Club, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you, Mitch. And this one, five stars, simply the best storyteller. John has the best collection of stories and classic stories. Really enjoy every Sunday when new chapters are released. Looking forward to Mr. Stanfast's conclusion, a great book. That one from Sean, New York. Irish Gal 333, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you so much for the reviews. They mean a lot to me, and they help new listeners find us. They're greatly, greatly, greatly appreciated. Join us next Sunday night for three more chapters of Kidnapped from Robert Louis Stevenson. Between now and then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. 